So, um, but I heard this interesting thing that happened. Um, you may not know this, but when King George III lost the American colonies during the Revolutionary War, it said by, according to legend, that he was with one of his advisors and he had this spirit come over him and he said, someday an heir of mine will rule the American colonies. And I thought, well, that's just kind of weird. I mean, what are the chances of that? And then I read this week that Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's children uh, have the ability um, for their children to be president of the United States. And I thought to myself, way to play the long game, George. Way to play the long game. Now, I thought that was funny. I put that on Facebook and I got flagged. It said, lacks context. So there you go. Hey, what is prophecy? Today we're going to be talking about prophecy. If you want to turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11 or your mobile devices, we're also going to have it on the screen. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. I'm just going to tell you now that verse 1, I decided I like the NIV translation better. Verses 2 through 12 will be in the New Living Translation. But that's just where we're going to land today. So let me ask you a question. What is prophecy. Do you know what prophecy is? Go ahead and share with the person next to you what you think, uh, how you would define prophecy. I'm going to give you four seconds. Ready? Go. There's not a lot of talking going on. You're supposed to share right now. Right. Prophecy is foretelling the future. It's telling what there is to come. Isaiah chapter 11 is all about prophecy. Now, you know that there's good prophecy and bad prophecy. There are prophecies like your life is going to be filled with heartache and destruction. Your crops are going to be raised. People are going to steal your uh, your your food. Your kids are going to die and um, you're going to be invaded by locusts. That's not a good prophecy. Nobody wants a prophecy like that. But there are other prophecies in Scripture where there is a, a man of God or a woman of God who come along and say, this is what's going to happen. You might be down right now, but the Lord has not forgotten you. Those are good prophecies, right? Well, in chapter 11, Isaiah is prophesying about a king or a Messiah that will bring peace and rule with wisdom. He is coming to offer hope to a hopeless generation, to a hopeless people. And that's where we're going to land today, and that's what we're going to study. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, and then we're going to talk about that just a little bit. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a, a branch will bear fruit. Now, just a quick history. 200 years, and we've talked about this before, but 200 years before uh, this time period, before Isaiah is writing, the nation of Israel has a civil war, right? Solomon has just died. Solomon is King David's son. Then Solomon, when he dies, his son takes over and he is oppressive and the people revolt. And 10 of the tribes of Israel uh, go to the northern part of the nation with one of Solomon's generals and they establish a kingdom that they continue to call Israel. I'm going to show you on the map here. That's this right here, right? Two of the tribes of Israel break off and they go with Solomon's son and they established the kingdom of Judah with Jerusalem as their capital. 200 years. For 200 years, it's like every other family in this room, right? Sometimes they love each other. Sometimes they hate each other. Sometimes they're jealous of each other. Sometimes they bicker back and forth. Sometimes they have alliances together. But for 200 years, this relationship is going on. So Isaiah the prophet is from the southern part of the nation of Judah. 
And he's prophesying throughout his book about what's going to happen both to Isaiah or uh, to Israel as well as Judah. He will say that the ten tribes of Israel someday because they're filled with idols and they've become a godless nation. He writes with incredible sadness what God has in store. And he correctly predicts that the nation of Israel will be torn down by the Assyrian army. If you remember from a couple weeks ago, we talked about the Assyrians being a brutal um, really horrific army. It was one of the most powerful armies in the world. And they would not only defeat you, but they would humiliate you and they would torture you and they would skin you alive and hang your skin from the walls of their cities. They were horrible, horrible, horrible people. There are so many people that were so afraid of them. They just, one king killed himself when he heard the Assyrians were coming because he was afraid of what they might do. And so when the Assyrians take over the ten tribes of Israel, the northern tribes, they take them into to captivity, but they do something different. Now, years later, when the Babylonians take over Judah, they'll take a remnant, one group of people, and they'll plant them in the middle of the Babylonian kingdom as one group. And so they maintain their identity. But the Assyrians take small groups of Israelites and they place them throughout their kingdom. And then they take another conquered people and they bring them into what is Israel and they put them there. The reason being the Assyrians wanted national unity. They wanted you to forget where you came from so that you wouldn't hold on to that so that you wouldn't rebel against them and try to rise up against them so that you would become holy Assyrian. And so that's what they do. They send them into small groups. And what we learn throughout history is those groups of people begin to intermarry with different groups of people who've moved in. And we begin to call them the 10 lost tribes of Israel because there's no identity. The only way that we're really even able to, to figure that out is some, some groups like uh, will say that they've maintained their identity is Jewish or Israelites. And we have that through DNA. I found out that I'm through ancestry. I'm 3% Jewish, which I told my wife and I'm related to Jesus. So she needs to listen to me more. But what's heartbreaking is that as a nation, as a whole, just disappears from history. And Isaiah saw that coming. It's a heartbreaking moment for God's people. At the same time, Isaiah is writing what's happening to a devastated state of Judah. Eventually, what's going to happen is, remember, the, uh, the king of Judah calls in Assyria because um, there are so many nations surrounding them that want them to join a confederation. Judah declines because of their fear of the Assyrians. Assyria comes in and destroys all of those other kingdoms. At some point, Assyria is like, look, this is not enough power for us. We, we should just take over the whole area. And so they begin to march towards Jerusalem. And as they march through Jerusalem, they begin conquering different cities and towns and then sending those, Jew, um, those Jews. Okay, it's called Judah. And the reason we call them Jews is because they're from Judah. Make sense? And he begins sending them into Assyria, but he finally gets to the capital of Jerusalem and he besieges them. Joe is going to talk in a few weeks about an amazing thing that happens in this story. You want to talk about God showing up in a hopeless situation? You're going to hear about it and I can't wait for you to hear about it. But King Sennacherib of Assyria comes to Jerusalem, capturing Jews, sending them to Assyria, and the country will be laid to waste, deforested. People taken, the nation shrinks, crops destroyed. In fact, it's so bad that in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 13, Isaiah compares Judah to a stump. Now think about that. 
A tree flourishes, it's beautiful, it's strong, it has its branches. But what happens when the tree is cut off? It's left to look like something that's dead, something that's not productive, something that can't produce, right? And so the people of Israel and Judah, the remnants that remain, are faced with incredible hopelessness. But God isn't done. And in the midst of their heartache, in their midst of their heartbreak, in their midst of their hopelessness, God is sending them a prophecy through the prophet Isaiah of hope. And this is what he says. He says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Now, do you think that anything that's dead can produce life? Do you think that a tree that has been cut off at the very bottom can ever produce fruit again or seeds again or life again? What he's saying is this, that someday out of a stump, new life will take place. So out of your devastation, out of your depression, out of your anxiety, out of your fear, someday God will rise up, will raise up again the nation of Israel. Someday, even though it looks bad right now, you need to remember he has not forgotten you. He will not let you be destroyed. His promise is still real. His promise is still true because you are his chosen people and he is going to bless you. And he is going to send somebody to come in and take care of business because he has not forgotten you and he is not done with you. So I want to have you just talk to the person next to you again because, A, it keeps you awake. And, you know, B, it's important for you to be participatory in the service. So turn to the person next to you and you share with them your definition of hope. I'll give you five seconds this time and I don't really count. So just go. What is hope to you? Okay, in the 90s, there was this movie that came out and it was about a guy who was in love with a girl. I mean, how many movies like that are there out there, right? And he just has this, he just believes with all of his heart that this is the girl that he's going to marry. He follows her. He tries to help her. Finally, he comes in contact with her. And like what happens to all of us guys who meet that girl that, that blows our socks off, he kind of is nervous and anxious and he fumbles with his words and he finally walks up to her and he says, you know, what are the chances of a guy like you and a girl like me ending up together? And she looks at him and she says, not good. He says, not good, like one in a hundred. And she says, I'd say more like one in a million. And there's this pause. And then he smiles and he says, so you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> Listen, that is the definition of hope, right? No matter what you're facing, no matter what the odds are, you believe that a good ending is going to take place. You believe that a better day is coming. Friends, how important is hope in your life? How important is hope in your life? Because believe it or not, it, there's a choice. We can choose to be hopeful or we can choose to be hopeless. It's an attitude. It's an opportunity. It's, it's a freedom that we have to choose to hope in God or not hope in God. In his book, Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl, uh, who was a Jewish psychiatrist who survived the concentration camps during World War II, um, would write that prisoners had to have the ability to imagine a worthwhile future in horrible circumstances and that whatever they chose became a life or death sentence for them. He said, while in the camps, brutalized, starving, beaten, deprived, 
that he would force himself to envision a better future, a more realistic future, a hopeful future. He said he would vividly imagine in his mind when he was suffering the most that someday, someday he would once again stand before a group of students and teach. He said he would vividly visualize in his mind sitting around with friends and laughing and reliving stories of their youth. He said that in his mind he would visualize sitting by a fire with a book, relaxing, reading again. He said, by contrast, sometimes in the camps, a person would be unable to imagine a meaningful future and they would simply lose the will to live. They would lie down in the mud and neither beatings or pleas would move them and they would simply lay down and die. How important is hope? How important is hope? Hope is one of the most important attitudes that you can hold. Listen what Isaiah is giving to the nation of Judah and to the people of Israel. He is giving them hope. He is saying to them, don't give up. It's not over. It's not the end of the story because God is not done writing this chapter. So just hold on. Hold on. He says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse and his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Now, why doesn't he say that the stump of Jesse, uh, why does he say that it's going to be from the stump of Jesse rather than from David's family? Well, because David's family had made a mess of things over the years and over the generations, right? They'd become dysfunctional. They were a mess. Uh, they were corrupt. And that wouldn't have given much hope to the people who'd lived under the rule for generations. But instead, God is saying that a king will come from this line, but it won't be like the family of David. Instead, it will be another David. Now, I don't want you to miss this. This is so important. And it will help you with your context when you read the New Testament and read about Jesus. Just like David, this new king, this new Messiah won't look like a king. Now, do you remember the story of David? Uh, Samuel the prophet goes to Jesse's house. And he's like, hey, Jesse, man, I, you know, God told me that the next king of Israel is going to come from your house. And he's like, that's awesome. I want you to bring out all your kids and let's, let's look them over and see what God is going to do here. And so he brings out his eight sons and they're big strapping, you know, football players like the elite that should go to Notre Dame and uh, they, they're tall and they're strong and, and they look like kings. But one after one, he's like, nope, this guy's not going to, this is not the one. Nope, this is not the one. They get through the whole line and finally he's like, is this all you got? And Jesse's like, well, there is the youngest, but he's kind of the run of the family and he doesn't really have a lot of potential. He comes, he's more like his mother's side. Um, <laughs> I may have you know, looked into that a little bit too much. Anyway, so he's like, but he's just out herding sheep. He said, well, go get him. Let's see if this is the one. And this awkward young man comes in and Jesse said, and Samuel says, this, this, this is the guy. He didn't look like a king, but when the spirit of the Lord came upon him, the shepherd of sheep became a slayer of giants. And friends, I want you to know today, if you are a Christian, that same spirit that came and dwelt upon David is inside of you. The Bible says the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Did you know that you have that power? Did you know that you had that spirit? Did you know that you had that hope? Did you know that you have the ability for greatness, not because of who you are, but because of who he is inside of you? 
Did you know that? So you're saying there's a chance. Your marriage is a mess. And you're wondering what tomorrow will look like. But if God is in you, he's telling you there's a chance. You're a relational disaster. Join the club. But if God is in you, he's saying there's a chance. Your kid is crazy just like their parent. The other one. If God is in you, he's saying there's a chance. Your parents are crazy just like Papa and Meemaw. If God is in you, what he's saying is that there is a chance. Your health is a challenge. You don't know how you're going to find healing. The doctors aren't giving you much hope. You're struggling every day with the challenges that whatever sickness you have is offering you. But I'm telling you, friends, if God is in you, what he's saying is you're saying there's a chance. If your financial situation is similar to the Beverly Hillbillies before they start, struck black gold, Texas tea, if God is in you, what he's saying is there's a chance. You see, with God, you're never out of it. With God, there is never a hopelessness that should invade you or pervade you. If God is with you, who can stand against you? As long as God is the Lord of your life, as long as you are following Him and trusting Him and praying to Him, I'm telling you what He's telling you today is, I'm saying there's a chance. It's called hope. It's called hope. But there's this tension when it comes to hope. Right? There's this tension when we face trials, when we face uh, difficulties, when we face challenges. It's the tension between I can do it and God, you need to do it. Uh, how many of you have kids? How many of you have grandkids? There is something, and I don't know what happens if it's in the water, or if it's because their moms are crazy or their dads are crazy. But listen, with little kids, they love to say these three words. I can't four words. I, I went to school in Indiana, so forgive my math. I can do it. And sometimes they had a fifth word myself, right? You ever have a kid like that? Sometimes that's good because you want to foster independence. You know, um, I have a, a three-year-old and she's the middle child. And, and I don't know if it's true what they say about middle chi- children. I don't even know what they say, but sometimes they're strong willed, right? So I have my little Gracie is three and she loves gum. Now, what happens when a three-year-old eats gum? They swallow it. They get it in their hair. They get it in their sister's hair, their brother's hair. They find it in the carpet. What, whatever. So, but she is determined because I allow her big sister, Gabby, to eat gum. She wants to eat gum or chew gum. I guess you don't eat gum. You chew gum. So anyway, Gracie is very self-reliant. And she's extremely intelligent like her mom. So I keep gum on the top shelf of the pantry. We have gone into the kitchen where Gracie has stepped one stool down and then put another stool on top of that stool and then a bowl on top of those two stools. She climbs up until she can get to the metal wire and she begins monkey crawling as high up as she can get because she wants the gum. But guess what? She's not tall enough, even when she's climbing, to grab the gum. So at some point, she realizes this is a no-win situation and she'll say, And I'll say, you know what, if you just asked daddy, you wouldn't have to do that. And she'd say, daddy, can I have some gum? And you know what I say? No, go to bed. (laughs) No, right. So I, I, yeah, you can chew gum before you go to bed. So sometimes, right, we have to come to a point 
in our lives where we realize we can't do it ourselves. We don't have the power. We don't have the strength. And when we try to do it ourselves, we end up failing and it ends up becoming a mess because God intended to rescue us. And what he wants for you is his story, his will, but he gives you the chance to choose. And when we choose ourselves, it will end in, in horrible messes. Trust me, I've lived enough decisions to, to see that my life is a mess when I leave God out. But when you bring God into it and allow him to write your story and you follow him and you follow his commandments and his laws and his direction and trust him in the midst of your chaos, it'll end up being a beautiful story, even if it doesn't look like it right now. Um, one of the great authors, um, Louis L'Amour, great American author, my favorite author outside of Jesus, right? So... He wrote this. He said, there will come a time when you believe everything is finished. That will be the beginning. And friends, that's the way God works. Until you get to the place where you realize you can't do it on your own, you are going to continue to just tread water and tread water, tread water. There will come a time when you realize you can't do it on your own. God doesn't want you to do it on your own because he loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to challenge you. He wants to cheer you on. Listen, the other day I had to spank my daughter because she was just getting in trouble. And let me tell you, I never thought this was true until I had my own kids. It hurt me. It broke my heart that she would disobey me and not listen because I want the best for her. I want her to have the best life possible. And isn't that where God is with us? He wants us to have the best life that he created for us. But sometimes we just can't see it. Sometimes we're just not willing to go there. What God is saying, no matter where you are today is... So I'm saying that there's a chance. And God is saying to his people, I'm going to do something special. You just need to hold on. And this new David is going to change the world. Listen to what he says in verses 2 through 5. He says, And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. And what he's saying is, is from the devastation of this broken, uh, broken experiment that was once called Israel, I will bring life again into a war-torn, weary people. He says, in that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion. And a little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child will put his hands in the nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. Now listen. The older we get, the more we realize just how valuable peace is. Can I get an amen, older folks? 
And as I was thinking about this passage, I was thinking about Christians in persecuted parts of the world like Ethiopia, like Iraq, like in Aleppo, like uh, Iran, like in Malaysia, like in Myanmar, like in Africa, like in Egypt, which is technically in Africa, like in China. People whose faith is more than just a bumper sticker. People whose faith has been tried and tested. People who know that if they're found out that their life will be forfeit because simply they claim Jesus as Lord and Savior. People who know that their children may be killed for their faith. How much do you think this verse means to them? That the lion will lay down with the lamb. That peace will inherit the will invade the earth. That there'll be no more violence, no more hatred, no more hurt. In that day, the heir of David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to bring back the remnant of his people. Those who remain in Assyria and northern Egypt and southern Egypt, Ethiopia and Elam in Babylonia, Hamath and all the distant coastlands. He will raise a flag among the nations and assemble the exiles of Israel. He will gather the scattered people of Judah from the ends of the earth. Now, many people see this as a fulfillment of prophecy that took place on May 14, 1948, when people from all Jewish people, Israel, Israelites from all over the world came back to their homeland in Israel and God established a nation there. Whether that is or not, you know what it says to me? It says that there's hope. For the lost people who are nationless and directionless, there is hope. For the people who are going through mess and heartache and division and dysfunction, there is hope. For the people who seem lost in their own musings and meanderings and the lure of what life says is important, who find out that those promises are empty, it says that there's hope. Because God cares more about your future than he does your past. He cares more about what you do today and that he has cleansed you of your sins if you are a Christian than he does what you did last night. And listen, I know that in this life, we can look forward, not just for the next life, but for the life that we have. Jesus came that we may have life and have life to the full. Does anybody know where that verse is found? I'm just going to tell you it's somewhere around John chapter 10, verse 10. But at some point, at some point, at some point as we age and we get older and we lose friends and loved ones, as their lives are extinguished here on this earth, it's hard to continue to have the zest for life and a hope for a better future. My grandpa Hargrave was one of the most positive people I've ever met. He was a Bible college professor. He was in ministry for over 60 years. He planted eight different churches. He was always positive. When I graduated from Bible college, my dad, uh, he was in his 80s, and, and my dad had bought him golf clubs to play golf with some of his friends. And um, when I graduated, he said, here, I want to give these to you. And I said, Grandpa, don't you, don't you need these golf clubs? He said, no, I'll take them. All my friends are dead anyway. 
What happens when we come to that place in life where we feel like we have more memories behind than we have future ahead? Listen to what Solomon says about that, about the aging process. Anybody experiencing that in here? Anybody challenged with getting older? He says, don't let the excitement of youth cause you to forget your creator. Honor him in your youth before you grow old and say, life is not pleasant anymore. Remember him before the light of the sun, moon and stars is dim in your old eyes and rain clouds continually darken your sky. Remember him before your legs, the guards of your house start to tremble. And before your shoulders, the strong men stoop. Remember him before your teeth, your few remaining servants. What does that mean? Stop grinding. Thank God for Dennis today, right? And before your eyes, the women looking through the windows see dimly. Remember him before the door of life's opportunities is closed and the sound of work fades. Now you rise at the first chirping of the birds, but then all their sounds will grow faint. Remember him before you become fearful of falling and worry about danger in the streets, before your hair turns white like the almond tree in bloom. And you drag along without energy like a dying grasshopper. Such beautiful imagery. And the caper berry no longer inspires sexual desire. Remember him before you near the grave, your everlasting home, when the mourners will weep at your funeral. Friends, what do we do when the zest for life begins to fade? What do we do when those that we loved are no longer here? What do we do when we think that our better days are behind us and there's not much hope for a future? Because sometimes, sometimes, the pain of aging is so palpable and painful, we don't know which direction to go. I want to share with you a video in just a second. It's a, it's a resignation speech by Robert McQuilkin, who was president of Columbia International University for 22 years. At the age of 57, he discovered that his wife had Alzheimer's, and over the next several years, her memory began to fade, and she became increasingly irrational and found himself torn between two commitments, one to his career, the other to his marriage. He wrote that when Muriel was with him, she was content. When she was not with him, she was very discontented. And so sometimes when he would go to work, she would follow him. It was a mile round trip to go to the college from their home. And sometimes she would make that trip 10 times a day when he would get home at night and he would undress her and get her ready for bed. Sometimes when he took off her shoes, he would see that her feet were bloody from walking. So Robert McQuilkin chooses to resign from the university's presidency so that he can serve his wife full time. And I want you to hear what he has to say today. Listen to this. I haven't in my life experienced easy decision-making on major decisions, but uh, one of the simplest and clearest decisions I've had to make is this one, because circumstances dictated it. Um, and I won't go into great detail, I'd be glad to talk with anyone individually, but uh, Muriel, now, uh, in the last couple of months, seems to be almost happy when with me and almost never happy when not with me. In fact, she seems to feel trapped, becomes very fearful, sometimes almost terror, 
And when she can't get to me, there can be anger. She's in distress. But when I'm with her, uh, she's happy and contented. And so I must be with her at all times. And the, the phrasing of the letter that I wrote and is quoted in the news release would might indicate that she needed me to be uh, have nursing care all day or something like that. But that was not intended. It's just simply that I must be with her. Uh, you see, it's not only that I promised in sickness and in health till death do us part and I'm a man of my word but as I have said I don't know with this group but I've said publicly it's the only fair thing she sacrificed for me for 40 years to make my life possible so if I cared for her for 40 years I'd still be in debt However, there's much more. It's not that I have to, it's that I get to. I, I love her very dearly, and you can tell it's not easy to talk about in public. She's a delight. It's a great honor to care for such a wonderful person. You know, there's two things, two gifts that God gave us in the very beginning. Um, God intended for there to be no sin. And that meant that there would be no death. And that we would live in his presence as he walked among us for all of our life. Satan destroyed that by introducing sin, used Adam and Eve as pawns who willingly chose freely to sin. But the problem with that is that sin brings death. The second thing that he gave us, even before the fall of humanity, is we see that Adam was lonely. And God said, you need a helpmate, a best friend, somebody to walk with. I don't know about you or where you are in life, but that's the kind of marriage I want to have. And here's the thing, it doesn't matter... You can't change your past, but you can change the way you're living today. You can change the decisions you're making today. And so wherever you are, you strive to have that kind of marriage, that kind of relationship, that kind of friendship. But here's the good news, friends. We are all getting older. I often will tell my wife that, I was a, that I'm an athlete, and she will say, No, you were an athlete 25 years ago. Now you're a couch potato. But here's the thing. As we get closer to the end of our life, we know that someday these worn out bodies are going to fall apart and that our souls, the, the true you that lives inside of you is going to be released. And because of Jesus Christ, we can have hope in a, a new life with a new body in an everlasting uh, environment that we will never have to leave the ones that we love, that we'll never have to leave the presence of God again, that we'll never have to deal with sickness or death or divorce or depression or suicide. We get to live in a place where there is only joy and happiness where we get to fulfill what we were created for around people that we love for all eternity. And so I want to share some scriptures as I end my message with you today that I hope will bring hope to you because they do to me. One of my favorite verses is 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 4. It says, that is why we never, what? 
give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the, what? Troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things that we see now will soon be gone, but the things that we cannot see will last forever. And friends, what I want you to know is what he's talking about is as we get older, our hope should be renewed, should be restored. Our troubles that we face today should remind us that we have a creator that we need to push toward, that we need to love, that we need to give all of our hearts to, because that is the ultimate hope that we have, is the hope of heaven, the hope of being forgiven, the hope of living with Christ for the rest of our existence, which is eternity everlasting. The next verse is from 1 Thessalonians. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know that what will happen to the believers who have what? Died. So you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. And the last verse is from Revelation. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. You want hope? There's hope. Let's pray. God, I just thank you so much for the way that you love us. Today we pray for freedom. We pray for freedom from hopelessness, freedom from depression, freedom from anxiety, freedom from the messes that are are our lives. God, we pray that you would help us to keep our eyes focused on you because we know that you are the author and perfecter of our faith. So God, we pray that today that you would energize us, that you would look with help us to look with new eyes on what is before us, which is your son and not what is behind us. God, help us to live as new creations. God, help us to live with hope that no matter where we are, you can still bring hope and write a new chapter in our life story today. Help us to have the hope that as we grow old, Lord, and as our bodies begin to fall apart and we begin to lose those that we love the most, that there is a better tomorrow, that a new reality will be our reality and that we can find hope in you. God, encourage us. Give us fearlessness as we face the day, not because of ourselves, but because of you who lives in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.